0: You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Welcome to our fourth in this five-week series called Shift. I don't know if you realize this, but the first century that Jesus lived in was a powder keg of strained religious and racial relationships. The people of Israel were outraged at the violent domination of the Roman Empire over their lives. At the same time, they were disillusioned and distrustful of their religious institutions, realizing they were corrupt as well. You know, so often I think many Christians believe Jesus kind of just popped into a place and time that was idyllic and peaceful and tranquil and wonderful. And he just spoke these uh, words of wisdom in a timeless way and fashion outside of any context. And he almost kind of wrote a textbook on spiritual chemistry or religious physics, you know, kind of laws and principles to live by no matter what, no matter when, when in reality He lived in the midst of a people that were filled with many conspiracy theories and cynicism as they hoped for a better day, as they were nostalgic for a golden era past that really hadn't existed, and as they were also paranoid and anxious over a present apocalyptic possibility. So when we read Jesus in the four gospels, we don't get him out of this context, we get him speaking into the middle of this context, and he does not back down from speaking about things like the realities of race and culture and politics and religion and economics for his day and therefore for ours as well. Uh, Just think for a moment before we get into the text in Luke chapter 10 today, uh, just think for a moment of some of the questions and challenges Jesus had as he addressed issues around him. For instance, he was asked whether people in Jerusalem and in Judea should pay taxes to an occupying power, the Roman Empire? Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? That was a lightning rod of a question. He was also asked about the brutal killing of fellow Jews by Pilate and his soldiers. And how did they deserve that? And what happened there? Would he call for a rebellion like the Maccabees before him or the present uh, zealots in his day that wanted to take up arms against Rome? Or would he acquiesce and give in to the entire culture like the Herodians did, another group, that basically said, live and let live. The Greek way of life is the way to go. Don't worry about religion. Don't worry about what we believe. What would he do? He was asked time and again about the legitimacy of the priesthood and the temple cult and what was going on there. He came into the midst of that and saw the corruption there and called it out for what it was. And in fact, when he did, he was dead just a few days later. What was the kingdom of God really about? What about Rome? What about the laws? What about rules? What, how do we get in? How do we, Those questions were all in this context. So I like what Pastor Greg Finke recently wrote in his blog post. He's a fellow pastor and he said this, Jesus doesn't reinforce your political system. He unravels it. He is both much more conservative and much more liberal than any of our political systems would allow. If you turn Jesus into someone who sounds like you, thinks like you and judges others like you, you've replaced Jesus with an idol of you. It is difficult, a difficult, narrow pathway. Jesus is leading his followers to navigate, but it is the pathway Jesus is leading his followers to navigate. Come follow me. And so we're going to read this text in Luke chapter 10, a parable about what it means to really follow Jesus. And he's going to unravel you. He's going to unravel me as I've read this and studied this, this text, just like he took the expert in the law who tested him and asked him and unraveled his whole way of thinking. Now we call that the parable of the good Samaritan, but you won't find that as the description Jesus uses in the text. He spoke this parable in the midst of high racial resentment and power grabs in that society. And Jesus is telling this parable. He's not saying some nice things. He's being extremely subversive. He is upending the whole worldview of this expert in the law and all the logic and justifications of how this expert saw race and culture and ethnicity and religion. He doesn't leave him alone. In fact, I think Jesus is really showing compassion to him by turning things upside down and upending it for him. And ultimately, I think Jesus is calling us today to make the shift from me to you. From what's to my advantage? Who should I, you know, how do I get ahead to what is it that you need? What is for your benefit? What is to the glory of God? So today we're going to look at these three points about this shift. The self-justifying logic of our present way of seeing things. Our, the other directed compassion that Jesus calls for. And finally, how do we make that shift? From my self-justifying logic of keeping my life the way it is. To being more other directed as Jesus would intend. So here we go. Luke chapter 10 Starting at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But... He, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw it, saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I don't know if you noticed in the text, but the whole setup for why Jesus tells this parable is that phrase about the expert in the law. He desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, who is my neighbor. So Jesus enters this discussion with a lawyer and that was no neutral territory, by the way. Now, realize the lawyer or that phrase is not um, equivalent to an attorney at law today. No, the lawyer was actually a scholar or a student who was studying the Torah, the law of God, and was someone who would interpret that law. So he was an expert in the laws of God and he came, notice, in that text to test Jesus. He doesn't come to learn from Jesus. Maybe he decided to test Jesus, to challenge Jesus because of what Jesus had said in the Gospel of Luke right before this parable. It's possible that this expert in the law overheard Jesus when he said right before this in that same hour, Jesus is rejoicing in the Holy Spirit and says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So the lawyer could have overheard Jesus offering this prayer and he knows he's in the wrong category. He's in the category of the wise and the learned and he doesn't like it. And so he's going to challenge Jesus and see what Wisdom he really has, and how dare he call him out for being wise and learned. And the lawyer doesn't challenge Jesus with a straightforward question that's simple and profound, but he challenges him with a self-contradictory question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? See the contradiction in it? What do you do to inherit something? Is it possible to do anything? Inheritance usually is a gift because you're related to somebody because somebody else dies and they placed you in their will. So, how can you do something to inherit? So, is eternal life then an inheritance, a gift? that is given freely or is it something you earn? Is it a paycheck for what you have done? Which one is it? Inside that question is a contradiction already. So Jesus doesn't answer it directly. He probes a little deeper to ask the lawyer, the expert in the law, another question. He says, so how do you read the law? What's it for? What's the summary of it? What's all it about? And, The expert is an expert. He knows the heart of the law. He says, you're to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Great, Jesus says. Do that. You'll be good. And we see right there how the lawyer was misreading the law, not understanding what the law was for. He sees the law as kind of a ladder up to God, climbing one step at a time, and he can finally reach and attain what he earns by keeping the law, God's approval, and gain eternal life. And seeing in that way, if he saw it that way, he has a problem because who loves God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? And who loves their neighbor as much as they love themselves? Nobody does. And so the lawyer knows, ooh, wait a minute. That's kind of a dangerous. I am teetering on, the, on a high rung on this ladder, trying to climb even higher. And I could easily fall because he knows he can't keep it. He hasn't kept it. It's difficult. It's impossible. And so he has to try to justify himself. That's what the word is used here. And he rationalizes himself. He tries to make the law a little less, to be a little doable, to at least, um, so who's my neighbor? Those people can't be my neighbor. My neighbor are the people who are like me, you know? Who's my neighbor? He's trying to make the law manageable and doable. I I have certain people I like. They're neighborly to me. I can be neighborly to them. But what about those people? So Jesus knows he's got a testy scholar who's a self-justifying person. And what he does is Jesus is being subversive. He tells a story, a parable, to get behind that self-justification defense mechanism. Self-justifications are happening all the time. You want to know where you can find the most of them? Right now, just look at your Facebook feed, okay? Okay. And you will see all sorts of self-justifications about people's political stances, COVID-19, the extent of racism in our society and what to do about it. And I know it's so self-sealing in our logic to just put stuff up and refer to stuff that we like. It's hard to see it in yourself. I can point out somebody else's self-justification from a mile away, but I can't see it right here. C. Terry Warner in a book called The Bonds That Set Us Free gives us a good rule of thumb to diagnose any self-justification we might be doing. In it, he writes this. Here's a clue. Those times when you feel most miserable, offended, or angry are invariably the occasions when we're also most absorbed in ourselves and most anxious or suspicious or fearful or in some other way concerned about ourselves. And when I am focused on me, That's when I am most self-justifying. Like this expert in the law, I need to ask some questions. They're tough questions to answer, but I think they're worth us asking. For instance, what have I been most touchy about lately? And how have I responded to that? Hmm. Often self-justification is lurking under the surface. What is currently making me the most offended about what's going on in our society or world or in my family? What gives me the most anxiety right now? And what is my level of suspicion toward others? And what does that not say about them, but about me? Yeah, it's time to start us exploring our own self-justification just as much as this expert in the law needed to see himself. It's easy how you can believe almost anything that comes your way that reinforces your own ideas and reject anything that comes your way that negates your ideas and your understanding of culture, politics, issues like racism, what's going on in America, what's right, what's wrong. Wherever I am most vulnerable is where I often justify myself. I rationalize. I might blame others. I get started in what about-isms. Do you know what those are? Oh, yeah, that might be true, but what about? It's a form of deflection. What about isms? And we don't realize we're doing it. That's the hard part. It's easy to point the finger at others and blame them. But it betrays more something about myself. There are a lot of, there's a lot of wisdom in the scriptures. And it's good because each time I go back to it, um, I'm having my vision clarified, my understanding clarified on things. And, and when I read the Bible, it's actually reading me. It's actually inspecting me and I can squirm under it, but it's important for me to keep reading what the scriptures say. In the book of Proverbs, it's filled with a lot of wisdom and one that I've often passed over until this week is this, in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 28, it says, a lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. I don't know if you realize this, it's saying not just a person who lies hurts other people. No, 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 no. I wish it were that simple. No, people who are actually lying about someone and victimizing them see the other person as the problem. It's a double whammy. So often, I deceive myself, not God, not anyone else, in my self-justifications. Robert Quinn wrote a number of books that I use in my leadership classes, one called Deep Change. In it, he's talking about corporate American culture, a business, but he could also talk about any organization and maybe our cultural moment right now in the United States. And he writes about our tendencies. He says, virtually every dominant coalition in every organization has a sacred and self-sealing model. It represents the most sacred of common belief patterns because it justifies the present behavior of the most powerful coalition. It justifies the current equilibrium and limits change to incremental rather than transformational efforts. Now, I've used this in the past for what I consider the clergy union I see in many denominations and in my own church body, that is pastors who have, in a way, the dominance in our church. We have 50% of the voting power when we only represent 1% of the actual membership, And we use self-sealing logic about how hard our job is and how those people don't really know any better, they're not trained like we are, to keep things set up the way they are and keep us the center of what a congregation needs. But I'm seeing that also in our society right now, that the dominant coalitions or those coalitions trying to dominate society have self-sealing logic as well. You know, you've heard people say these days, there might be one or two bad apples, but the whole system is overall okay. Could it be just another way to just justify me liking the way the status quo is in my position in it and dismissing any real radical changes that might need to take place? You see, Jesus doesn't let me be Uh, happy with just the way I am, nor more than he was happy with the way the expert in the law was that was speaking to him. He wanted to justify his status quo of only loving the neighbors he agreed with. His fellow Jewish people who believed and went to the temple and followed the law, while he could hate those people who were not like him, those Romans And people like those groups over there and the foreigners and those who weren't keeping God's law. That's why he asked that question, who is my neighbor? And that's why Jesus tells the parable of the man who fell among the thieves. And through it, Jesus shows the other directed compassion that we all need right now. Jesus is a master storyteller, by the way. He's very simple and profound, and yet every phrase, every word matters, and he uses them in skillful ways. So you probably know this parable before because it's one of the most popular ones across our culture and in our world. The parable, we call it the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't call it that. He didn't call the Samaritan good. He just called him a Samaritan, but you probably know the story that a man is walking from the high point of Jerusalem. It was actually a high in elevation down a road, 20 ish miles to Jericho. And as he was going around the twists and turns of that road, he fell among robbers who stripped him, beat him, left him unconscious and for dead. All actually the identifying marks that that person would have that would distinguish who he was and where he was from and what group he was with were taken away from him. His clothing was stripped from him. His language, he couldn't speak. He was unconscious. His ethnicity could not be told. All we know from this parable is there is a man on the side of the road left for dead. And who is going to help? Who is going to be the neighbor? I think Jesus is trying to Ask, have us ask that question, which is a different one. Not who is my neighbor, but who will be a neighbor to this man? Now, the first possibility that comes along, coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho, is a priest. He's probably been in in Jerusalem for weeks, celebrating and doing his duties at the temple, and now he's coming back to his home family. And on the way, he gets and passes by This man, he sees him and he passes by on the other side. He doesn't come close. Now, why? Jesus doesn't uh, speculate. He doesn't let us give a justification for it. He just tells us it happened. And we could speculate, well, he doesn't want to spend, he doesn't know if the man is dead. You could come up with all, Jesus will not let any justification be given for why the priest left him there. Next comes the Levite. And like the priest, he also steps by and walks around the man. No reason given, that's just what he does. The priest and Levite have the appearance of godliness, have kept the law, have worshipped God at the temple, and yet have missed the whole core of what God's law was about. Everything they had done in Jerusalem seems to just be negated by the way they've treated this man by the side of the road. What kind of faith is that? Now, the prophets, the prophets before Jesus had spoken against such a faith as that. For example, in Hosea chapter 6, he says, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. And there's even a greater indictment against these two in this parable. And that comes subtly in the language and the cadence and the verbs that Jesus uses to describe the priest and the Levite. They come, they see, they leave. Just as the robbers came and beat him and left. The same cadence, the same pattern. They do the same things. They don't help. They don't get involved. And it's almost as bad as if they were the robbers themselves, Jesus is implying. To me, that's devastating. Because Jesus is basically saying to the expert in the law, and I think to us today, is your passive non-involvement in the plights of people around you, it's just about as bad as those who actually caused them. You're in the same category. Both priest and Levite, for whatever reason, self-absorbed, self-justifying, me-focused, moving on. So who's gonna break this pattern? And this, again, Jesus shocks the hearer because the third person that would be expected in this story from priest to Levite is a lay person. But instead, Jesus says and throws in from left field, oh, and then a Samaritan passed by. What? Samaritans were despised Heretics, half-breeds, who worship not at the temple, but at Mount Gerizim. And this Samaritan, I don't know what he's doing on this road. He's way out of his territory where he, quote, belongs up in Samaria. How could he, how could he be the person that's in this story There is no such thing, by the way, as a good Samaritan, according to that first century Jewish perspective. The only good Samaritan in their mind might be a dead Samaritan. But Jesus is deliberate. He chooses one of the most hated and despised ethnic enemies of the Jews of his day to be the center of this parable. But the Samaritan not only breaks the flow of the pattern of this parable by being a shocking third person, but also by his actions because he doesn't just come and stop and look and leave, but he stops. He looks closely. He has compassion. He heals. He gives. He places the man on his beast of burden. He leads him to the next town. He pays for his stay. He stays with him overnight, healing his wounds, and then says he will come back, pays even more, and give and give and give until the man is fully healed. That is compassion. That is what breaks the pattern of injustice. Compassion will break the systemic pattern of violence in this story, compassion. And the word for compassion again here is this word which means it's the guts aching for that person. It is described in the Gospels of how Jesus looks at the people with compassion like sheep without a shepherd. They are leaderless. They are wandering and he aches for them. He hurts for them. He will not let them be. Compassion breaks it. He won't, compassion will not allow any excuse, any self-justification, any rationalization to get in the way of actually helping and doing good. That's what it means to be a neighbor. Jesus didn't answer the question, who is my neighbor? Rather, he answers the question, what does it mean to be a neighbor? By this, Jesus is shattering all the old systems of placing self at the center who wants to gain eternal life and instead places the other person and their needs at the center. Followers of Jesus don't attempt to get people to orbit around them. Rather, we worship and center our lives on Jesus Christ, who then calls us forth to orbit around and serve and to give and focus on the needs of others. That's the shift. I think you could figure out how this applies to our day and age right now. I don't think we have to go into great details about it. I've already gone into some. Our arguments on race and justice in our society, maybe also on COVID-19 and how we respond to it in our society. And how much is it me focused or you centered? Is it focused on the needs of others in the glory of God or just on myself? But the real question isn't really who's right and wrong and how they're handling certain things right now. That would be just another attempt at me justifying myself. Rather, the real question for me is what's going to change me? What's going to make that shift for me? What will empower me to make the shift from being self-centered to being focused on others? What will move me from the cultural apathy to a desire to help others in a compassionate, merciful way and make a difference in this world. What's that power to shift? I think Jesus all along is not saying this parable to just diagnose an issue, but to also prescribe the cure. And in it, he's actually having compassion on the expert in the law. He's loving him by shaking up his world. You can almost hear Jesus imply, it's the subtext of this whole parable is, um, to the lawyer, he's saying, I don't think you realize who you are. You're not who you really think you are. Who you are in this story, you're not the priest who walked by. You're not the Levite. And you're not the Samaritan. I don't know if you realize this, but expert in the law, you're the person half dead on the side of the road. You can't help yourself. All the religious rituals will not save you. Your comprehension of the law is not going to suffice. At best, you're just left there on your own then. You need someone to intervene and someone like the Samaritan to help you. I don't know if you realize this, human nature, according to the scriptures, you can read that from Genesis chapter three all the way through the book of Revelation, that human nature by nature is not compassionate. I am not naturally compassionate. I am supernaturally compassionate. Compassion isn't who I am by myself. By my nature, I am self-centered and self-justifying ever since the fall in the Garden of Eden. Martin Luther, the reformer who lived about 500 years ago, who helped start the Protestant Reformation, wrote in a Latin phrase, kind of what human nature is like. And that he used is incurvatus in se, which means it's curved in on itself, like a funhouse mirror. All I see is myself. And when I look at others, I'm really just seeing myself and what's to my advantage. To get outside of myself, To be turned inside out, that's the word for conversion in the Bible, by the way. And that only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that, Jesus would say in this parable, only happens when you realize you're the dead person, half-dead person on the side of the road, stripped of all your dignity, left there. And you can't save yourself. And you are the recipient of amazing, outrageous, outlandish, Compassion and grace, unlimited, that will not stop, that will not just help you a little, but will help you all the way through. And you can only get that from someone outside of the present system of sacrifices and laws. Someone like a Samaritan. Imagine this scene. A Native American comes across a pioneer woman. He's from the tribe of Cherokee and she is a settler in the West in the 1800s. He finds her unconscious, left for dead on the side of this trail. And he picks her up, places her on his horse and travels to the nearest settlement there He asks them to open up the gates and that outpost, and he brings her in, where he cares for her overnight. What do you think the settlers would think of the Cherokee? You got it, guilt by association. They would assume that he had something to do with her condition. And you can imagine what he was risking when he did such a move. That is the case of the Samaritan in this text. He was actually risking his life. He was not inside his territory. He was not in his home area. He was outside of it where he was the outcast and the despised one. And by guilt, by association, he was risking his life to do what he did for the man by the side of the road. Did you know that Jesus was called a lot of names? Not pleasant ones like Lord or teacher or rabbi in the Bible, but also in the Gospels he's called things like a drunkard for how he hung out with sinners and tax collectors. He was called a blasphemer for someone who would forgive somebody's sins. He was called Beelzebub because of how he cast out demons. And in the Gospel of John, he's also called a racial slur, a Samaritan. by the people around him who wanted to dismiss him and deny him, he was called a Samaritan. And Jesus doesn't rebuff that because that would dignify that racial slur. He just speaks the truth to that situation. So Jesus, who is the Samaritan in this text? It's no one but Jesus who comes to your rescue, who does some outrageous love and doesn't just risk his life and the potential to maybe face his own loss for what he does for you. He gives his life. The cross is not a tragedy of someone who accidentally lost his life. The cross is a self-sacrifice of someone who gave up everything to save you, the one who's left half dead on the side of the road. And it's only after the resurrection that we recognize the extent of Jesus' love for us in this. So Jesus is calling us to respond, not just as he did the lawyer in this text. And the lawyer reluctantly answers, well, you know, I guess the one who showed mercy, that's the real neighbor. He couldn't even use the word Samaritan. He couldn't even use the word Samaritan. I don't know if we recognize how much mercy that we have received. You know, I've, I've heard people say things like, well, I've really worked hard for my everything I earn. And I'm going like, you know, that work that you're doing, that's also a gift from God. I mean, I don't think you ask God for your legs or your arms. Well, how did you earn your intelligence? Did you choose when and where you were born and to whom you were born and how you were raised? Those are all gifts that I have received. They're all privileges that I have. Period. Now, how am I going to use that? How am I going to use that? You know, um, it's compassion all the way through in my life from the fact that God made me to the fact that God redeems me to the fact that God gives me eternal life. By grace through faith, not because of anything that I have done. It's compassion all the way through. It's God's undeserved, unmerited, unlimited mercy towards me. How am I going to respond to anyone else? And when I am compassionate towards others, I'm fulfilling the law without even trying. That's the amazing thing. So a couple of questions we're finishing up today to apply this to right now, right here. What kind of shift are we going to take place in our lives? And the first question is, I think Jesus would be asking, who are you walking by right now? That is, what brother or sister do you encounter that needs your help right now? What situations have you written off simply because, well, you know, it's always going to be that way, or they need to work harder. They got to help themselves. Really? Is that how it worked for you? Second question, how are you possibly justifying your inaction? And third, in what ways are we playing it safe when Jesus called us to take a risk? I know these are tough questions. These are questions I need to be asking myself because this is not just about um, personal individual ethics or anything like that. It's not just, it's really going to be Um, how our culture and our society is going to last and survive and thrive and grow. Because how we as the church especially model and respond with compassion rather than indifference will make all the difference. That we respond with mercy rather than judgments. That we respond serving rather than lecturing. That's the way we're going to be shifting from me to you. Let's pray. Lord God, um, we do pray for um, all the things that we need right now in our lives and our days, but especially this shift. We need you to make the shift in our lives. We need the shift for our world's sake right now, that you would bring healing and wholeness, understanding and humility. We ask that you would raise up leaders in our society, O oh Lord, who model what this Samaritan did at great risk their own lives for the sake of others. We need that now more than ever, Lord God. We pray, Lord God, that you would bring us as a community of faith here at Thrive to to be a model of how we can overcome the greatest divisions our society sees right now through your compassion and grace And through the faith that you've given us and the hope that you have for us, that we are all saved by your grace through faith, Lord God. We pray, Lord, grace becomes so imbued in us that that's how we see everything, how we see everyone in every situation right now, Lord God. We ask for your spirit to be with us this week, Lord that we would sit in this story, this parable, understand our plight and how you saved us and understand now our calling to go and do likewise. To freely give as we have received, to freely love as we have been loved, to freely serve as we have been served and to um, be your light, your truth, your grace in this world. Lord God, We pray for your healing emotionally, socially, psychically, physically for members of our congregation and for our community. Lord God, we lift up to you and ask for your wisdom and guidance in the coming uh, church meeting that we'll have in a few minutes. We ask that you would bless it and give to us a clearer understanding of your vision for our future. We need you. We need to be in step with you all the way along, Lord, and keep us in pace with you, Lord God. I also lift up to you, Lord, um, and just your kingdom across this world. We know that Christians have faced difficulty and suffering and persecution and even death in this world. From Christians in Nigeria to those in India to those in China, Lord God, right now we know our brothers and sisters are suffering. And we pray for them. We pray for ourselves. And we know a billion or more people across this world are lifting up this prayer, the prayer you taught us together. And so that's how we also pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil.